The uh, scripture uh, reading this morning is Psalm 107 through 19 and uh, Psalm 33 through 43. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say no, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them for their distress. He led them by a straight way till they, till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfied their longing soul and the hungry soul he was filled with good. He turned the rivers into a desert, spring of water into thirsty grounds, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of his inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, parched land into springs of water. And there he let the hungry dwell, and they established the city to live in. They sow fields, plant vineyards, get a fruitful yield. By this blessing, they multiply multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through the oppression, evil, and sorry, he pours contempt on the princes that make them wander in their trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of the affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and they are wickedness shuts in the mouth, and all their wickedness shuts in the mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This week I was uh, reminded of a quote uh, from Martin Luther that says this. He said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. I thought that was a good quote before we come to the Lord and hear his word. Let's pray. Father, just uh, speak to our hearts, Lord. We thank you that your scriptures are uh, alive and true and that they run after us, Father. May they lay hold of our hearts this morning as we remember the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. As many of you know, uh, my wife and I have uh, four kids at home, uh, so our house is always full of activity and always very adventurous at most most times, 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 times. Uh, our youngest uh, was actually born uh, almost about a year ago, and uh, she's just brought great joy and happiness to our family. Uh, this past week, um, I was uh, home writing this sermon, actually, uh, when she was taking a nap, and uh, she woke up and started crying a little bit, uh, and I let her cry for a little bit to see if she would fall back asleep, but uh, of course she didn't. And uh, so I went back in uh, to find her and to take her out of her crib. And as I walked in the room, uh, she had been crying. Uh, her, her face was red uh, from screaming and crying and tears were streaming down her face. So I did what, you know, good dads do. And I, I picked her up and I tried to console her and I sang a song to her and we danced a little bit. And, uh, and within just a minute or two, uh, she was laughing and giggling and smiling and as happy as, as she could be. And I just was reminded about the extremes of emotions that we can sometimes see in babies. One minute 
uh, crying and screaming in sadness and in the next minute, uh, belly laughing and giggling in joy. And I often think about that whenever I approach uh, the book of Psalms as well. Because the book of Psalms, as we've seen throughout the summer, deals with extremes of emotion. You'll come to one psalm as we have this summer and you'll find the psalmist bursting with all sorts of joy. And then you'll just read the psalm that's right after it or right before it and you'll see the psalmist wrestling with feelings of hate. Both extremes are represented for us all over the book of Psalms and it has helped us to see that God wants us to bring all of our emotions before him. Not just in our prayers, but also in our worship of him. He wants us to bring them all before him. This morning, what I'd like to look at from from Psalm 107, a, a very powerful emotion, and that is the emotion of gratitude. And and hopefully we'll see as it connects with the gospel, this life-giving message of Jesus Christ, I hope that we'll we'll see three things. We'll see the motivation of the gospel, we'll see uh, the message of the gospel, and then finally we'll see the music of the gospel. I was really proud of that alliteration this week. That never happens to me when I think about sermons, but it happened this week. Uh, the first thing we see uh, in Psalm 107 is, is what, what I like to call the, the motivation of the gospel, the motivation of this message of Jesus Christ. Uh, This past week, uh, I wrapped up uh, a summer course that I was teaching here at the university, uh, and the course is called uh, Contemporary Spirituality. And uh, the capstone project for the the Contemporary Spirituality course is that you have to go and engage or, or participate in a spiritual experience that is unfamiliar to you. And then you have to write a three to four page paper on it and then come back to the very final class and report on your experience, not just what it was like, but but how you felt in the process. And this past Wednesday was uh, the class where the students began to report on their spiritual experience. And I had one student in particular uh, that I took notice of that came up and, and talked about her experience and what she felt uh, when she had went to this church and engaged in spiritual practice. But one of the things that she took away from it is she said, that as soon as I walked in to this church, I just felt an overwhelming sense of guilt. I don't know why I felt that way, but it was as I walked in, it was like I was hit by it from the very beginning. I just felt guilty. It reminded me that for many people, religion and any sort of religion is almost equated entirely with this idea of guilt. Either it's, it's guilt that comes from within us, we have guilty feelings that just come up when we walk in the door, or it's being made to feel guilty by other people who we interact with. Both forms of, of guilt can become of really powerful uh, motivators when you think about it. Think about all the things in your life that you do that, uh, that you are motivated to do from a spirit of guilt. We feel guilty about something, so in response, we do X, Y, and Z behavior, or we are made to feel guilty into doing something by other people. Guilt is an incredibly powerful motivator in life. 
not just in the church, but also in the entire culture. But the truth is that guilt, even though it is a powerful motivator, it is also a joyless motivator. There is often very little joy in guilt. Many of us feel guilted into spiritual practices or faith-related exercises. Maybe even sometimes you feel guilted into prayer. But the psalmist approaches his prayer, and after all, that's what the book of Psalms are. They are a collection of prayers. The psalmist approaches this prayer not with a sense of guilt, but with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble. See, the psalmist all throughout the Psalms uses lots of images to display his gratitude. Two images in particular he uses in order to to flesh out what this gratitude looks like. And and the first image is one of a city. Look at verse 4. Some have wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Uh, I don't know if you pay attention to things like this. I I do in a weird way. But uh, many sociologists believe that we are in the middle of uh, a, a great urban migration, meaning many people are moving more and more into cities now than they once did before. They've looked throughout history and and seen that there has been an ebb and flow to this kind of urban migration or moving into cities, and Baltimore's history is no different. At one point uh, in Baltimore's history, when uh, Bethlehem Steel and the manufacturing industry was very powerful in this city, uh, the population of Baltimore City was well over a million people. But once those industries closed down, there was a massive urban exodus in Baltimore. People left in droves to find other jobs and for many different reasons. A lot of people are now looking at Baltimore's history and saying we are now in an urban renaissance. More and more people are moving back into the city, not just in Baltimore, but all over the world. It was like that in the ancient world. Cities had a a different function and a different perception in the ancient world than in many ways they do today. You see, in the ancient world, the, the rural areas or the country were also called the wilderness. And they were not thought of well of. They were the home to fugitives and thieves. They were considered to be uh, places of incredible danger where there was no one to protect or to save you if you got in trouble, which meant that if you lived outside of the city, then you were by nature vulnerable, subject to all sorts of forces outside of your control. But the city was different. The city was a place of refuge and protection. There was safety and community and peace and protection that came from living within the walls of the city. 
And what the psalmist is doing is he is equating this, this image, with the protection and peace and safety that he has found in his relationship with God. The other image he talks about is later in the psalm, and that's the image of the desert. Look at verse 35. He, meaning God, turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. See, the wilderness was was also dangerous for other reasons. It was dangerous because of the elements of nature that were very unpredictable in the wilderness. One never knew when the elements could turn on a dime and someone would be left vulnerable, subject to the forces of nature. But what the psalmist says is that God brings abundance even in the desert. He has the sovereign power to bring abundance in the most desolate of places. And what the psalmist is doing here is he's using both of these images to speak about the abundance of blessing that comes from a relationship with God. He uses these images to capture just how overwhelmed with gratitude he is towards God. One of the, the famous and historic catechisms of the ancient church has, uh, is, is the Heidelberg Catechism. We often uh, quote it in services from time to time. It's one of the, the great Protestant catechisms. And catechisms were used uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, to help form and educate new believers in the faith and, and help raise up children. They had to memorize them and help raise them up in the faith as well. And, and the Heidelberg Catechism has always been one of my favorites because of its outline. And its outline really describes for us what, what the way to God or the path of a relationship with God looks like. And it consolidates it really in three different words. It outlines it as guilt, grace, and then gratitude. And what it means is this, the way of God comes first in recognizing our guilt. That guilt leads us to the need for God's grace, and God's grace leads us to a life lived in gratitude. And what it reminds us is that gratitude is the greatest motivation for a walk with God. You see, many of us functionally believe or practically live out or, or experience that the Christian life is all about guilt, then grace, then back to guilt. We live this life of faith under this kind of umbrella or, or cloud of being motivated simply out of our guilt. When really, each one of us, if we've discovered grace, each one of us is called to live out of an over overwhelming sense of gratitude. But the question then is, where does this gratitude come from? How do I find it? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the very message of the gospel itself. Uh, About a year ago, uh, David Brooks, who's a a columnist uh, who writes opinion pieces, I believe, in the the New York Times, uh, wrote an article in the New York Times called The Structure of Gratitude. 
And, and what he argues for in that article is that gratitude often has a lot to do with our expectations. And he uses an illustration to flesh this out. He says, if you uh, go on a business trip and you check into a five-star hotel on your business trip, then you have a certain expectation about service. You expect them to have clean towels and you expect them to have nice beds and all the perks that come from a five-star hotel you expect. Why? Because you paid for it. And if those expectations are not met, then you become very frustrated. He said, but then imagine that you check into a budget motel, a kind of seedy budget motel. Your expectations for that motel are often very low. And then when they go the extra mile, when they exceed those expectations, what do you have? You are surprised in that moment by gratitude. He he says this, this little phenomenon shows how powerful expectations structure our moods and emotions, none more so than the beautiful emotion of gratitude. Gratitude happens when some kindness exceeds expectations, when it is undeserved. Gratitude is a sort of laughter of the heart that comes about after some surprising kindness. So the question we ought to ask ourselves is, what sort of expectations do we have for our lives? What do you feel like you deserve from God or you feel entitled to that God owes you? Where do you struggle with your relationship with God because he seems to be withholding something from you that you feel like you deserve? Well, the message of the gospel helps us as we manage our expectations because the message of the gospel plainly tells us what we actually deserve. See, the gospel is clear that all of us stand before God as guilty. Just like that catechism told us, we've rebelled against God's perfect will. We have decided to be our own gods. Every time we sin, we shake our fist at God saying, I'm going to do it my way, not your way. We've broken his law. We violated his covenant. We've offended a just and holy God through our sin. And because of that, the Bible is clear. We deserve punishment. We deserve the full punishment of our sins. It could not be more plainly spelled out for us in the gospel. But the good news is the gospel doesn't leave us there. It also plainly and powerfully tells us what not only what we deserve, but also what we can receive. If we place our faith and trust in Christ we can receive grace. Christ was entitled to all the bliss and the reward of heaven. He lived a perfectly righteous life and deserved all the blessings and rewards accordingly. He was entitled to all those blessings and rewards, but instead he set it all aside and took our punishment for us. He did it all so that you and I 
can receive grace, that which we didn't deserve. You see, according to God's grace, we are given a right relationship with him. We are given an inheritance. Our eternity is secure in Christ. We are given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm as if we had perfectly obeyed ourselves. But friends, we also have to be very careful here because I think sometimes we can be seduced into thinking that God ought to give us things that he never actually promises to us. We, go, we grow bitter and ungrateful to God because he doesn't give us what we want. We all want the perfect bank account, the perfect house, the perfectly obedient kids. We want to be successful and well thought of and respected by others. But those are not the things that God promises to us, nor are we entitled to them. So what does God promise us in this earthly life, in this earthly existence, on this side of heaven? Well, the scriptures tell us, John 15, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What does God promise in this world? He promises tribulation. He promises troubles. 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Tribulation, troubles, persecution, these are the things that God promises to us on this side of heaven. And what it does is it reminds us that everything else, Great jobs, wonderful families, happy children, great homes, all of these things are simply the overflow and abundance of God's grace in your life. They are not things that we deserve and they are not things that we are entitled to. And when you and I begin to see these blessings as abundant gifts of God's grace, things that we don't deserve or entitled to, then we begin to feel the spirit of gratitude welling up inside of each one of us. There was an old, older, older gentleman at a church I used to work at years ago, and I thought about him consistently this week. Uh, he was kind of a quirky guy. He always said really quirky things. But one of the things that he always used to say is if you saw him in the hallway, he'd say, well, how are you doing today? And he'd always look at you and he'd say, I'm doing better than I deserve. And when this is our perspective, the million blessings that we overlook each day become powerful reminders of God's grace in our lives. When this is our perspective, we quit allowing our sense of entitlement and expectation to steal away our gratitude. So there is a logic to this message of the gospel, a a kind of beautiful order and logic to this message. But we often, if you're like me, we often sometimes struggle to translate that logic into our practice. And that is why there is more to the gospel 
than just the logic of it. Finally, there is the music of the gospel. Rosemary Miller is uh, a Christian author and speaker, and she's been writing books and speaking all over the country for a long time. And she often tells her, her story, which is a powerful one. And she'll, she says that uh, she was raised in the faith. She knew uh, the message of the gospel from the, a very young age. But she said it just lacked a certain power or effect in her life. She knew the logic. She knew the message back and forth. All the things that, that we just talked about, she knew all those things. She knew that she deserved punishment. She knew that everything was about God's grace. But she said, when I looked at my life, it just lacked impact and power on my heart. And then she said, one day it all changed. Through a certain circumstance in her life that was powerful and painful, it all changed And what she said is this. She said before she knew the words of the gospel, but now, finally, she was hearing the music of the gospel. You see, friends, the psalmist is not just celebrating the words of the logic of the gospel in this psalm. He is caught up in the music of it and the beauty of it. G.K. Chesterton often said this. He said, thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. You see, that's what the psalmist is getting at. He says in verse 8 and in 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of of men. You see, the psalmist all throughout the psalm keeps coming back to this idea of the steadfast love of the Lord as the primary source of his gratitude. Now, you and I could all go and pick up a dictionary and we could look up the word love in a dictionary and we would find a very accurate, and a very logical and clinical and correct definition of what it means to be in love. But of course, anyone who's ever been in love knows that there is far more to it than just a definition. There is a music to love that is just not easily quantified or categorized or or delineated into a concise definition. You see, the logic of the gospel may not help us in times of pain, in times of frustration, or times of unmet expectation, but that is the moment when the music of the gospel steps in and carries us through. So does your heart struggle to feel or to find gratitude? Is your speech or even your countenance characterized by gratitude? If not, then look to the very message of the gospel itself. May your gratitude for God and for life be fueled not just by the message of the gospel, but ultimately by the music of the gospel. And if you've never heard the music, 
then ask God's Spirit to bring those words alive. And may you discover all the blessings that are included in the great grace of God. Let's pray.